Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year folklore and history. Lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Devin and Sonia. Hi, I'm Devin, and I have a master's degree in American history with a concentration in Indigenous studies. And hi, I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And this week, we're figuring out how to stay alive through the winter. Excellent. What do you you eat in the winter? How do you get it? Where does the food come from? Obviously, there are winter stores, but how do you supplement that? Right, because, I mean, maybe you didn't have the best harvest. Maybe some of your food has gone rotten in the intervening months since you stored it away. In any case, you might want to supplement your diet a little bit, especially once you get into like January, February, where it's, you know, you're really down to your last, last little bit of whatever you had stored away. Exactly. So So, Sonia's going to start us off talking about winter in Europe. And then we'll swing over to the Americas and find out what's been going on here in the frigid tundra of Canada. That is very fair, because I I will say, for the most part in a lot of Europe, winter was and remains much more mild. So, I mean, they could start their, like, spring crops much earlier than, like, you know, in Canada. You can't really start growing anything until yeah. May. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, especially if you are further in the north of Europe, like, you know, Scandinavia, mm-hmm. then y- you might turn to some of these foraged foods for sustenance. And again, particularly in lean years or famine years, this is what you would need to do to survive. So I'm going to start out with bark bread. Huh. Because that's a thing that people ate. You know, you hear stories about people eating tree bark, but turns out, you know, it's it's actually <laughs> real. I don't know. I always thought that was kind of kind of hokey. It's like I don't know if I really believe anyone was chowing down on tree bark, oh. but turns out I I was wrong. Uh so apparently tree bark, specifically pine bark and birch bark, have been used for centuries, specifically, like, primarily in Scandinavia, and especially the tradition seems to be the oldest among mm-hmm. the indigenous Sami people. And it looks like it was even used in times of plenty to kind of boost the nutritional value, because there is some, like, nutrients and right. fiber in the pine bark or the birch bark that you could use to, you know, keep you from getting sick through the long, dark winter, basically. So it seems like what you would end up doing would be taking, like, scraping bark off the tree. Mm-hmm. And there's a specific way that you have to harvest it, um, because you don't want to take it from all the way around the tree, right? Exactly, because then that'll kill it. So you need to take it from kind of one side of the tree and sort of scrape, like, uh, like vertically, Mm -hmm. not horizontally. Like, you don't want to make a ring around the tree. You want to take a strip down one side. 
because then that keeps enough of the tree okay. protected that it's like safe. And basically it seems like you could take these and basically grind up the bark and add it in with other grains um, when you were going to make your bread. And it seems like these sometimes were just used for flavoring, but often were used Extend to kind of, life of bulk out your food stores. Exactly. And it's actually been used until very recently as a survival food. Like, it was documented people used this during the Napoleonic Wars when they mm -hmm. were... Food was scarce and, you know, they were trying to survive. And it was also used in the Finnish Civil War of 1918 oh, wow. because there was so much unemployment and food shortages that people started using this again. So it's a very, very long tradition um, in, in these northern reaches to, you know, basically use tree bark as an additive to grain when you're trying to make your bread. Mm -hmm. um, another way that you could supplement your food in the winter is by looking for nuts and berries. Obviously, there are going to be more berries around in the summer and the fall, but there are things that are in season mm -hmm. in the wintertime specifically. Uh, pine nuts are very common because, <laughs> you know, that's when they kind of ripen is through the winter. And they're relatively yeah. easy to find as long as you can kind of pick up the pine cone shake it a little and you know they'll uh they'll dislodge basically okay. and you can add them into different recipes cool or um another popular way to do this is just to like roast them or toast them so you would basically just have a little little crunchy snicky snack and the other important part of this was that you would take your pine cones and actually if they weren't dislodging um, you could put them near your fire and oh, the heat cool. would sort of open them up so then you could pick them out individually if you needed to. So that's been a documented, you know, traditional food that would help you get through the winter. There were also um, different berries like white beam or sloes, which basically you can add into, again, like yeah. anything else you're eating, but they are specifically um, quite popular in, you know, local regions cooked down into like a jelly or jam. And again, I mean, it makes sense. It's going to bulk out your diet a little bit. It'll give you some variety, which would be much, much appreciated after what would have been months of, you know, eating winter vegetables and bread and not okay. much else. Maybe a little yeah. salted pork. But I think this is this is a really interesting one to me is juniper mm -hmm. berries because you don't really eat juniper berries as a as a food in and of yeah. themselves, but they are what gives gin yeah. its flavor. And even before people were making gin, there um, there is you know records of people using them basically to flavor meats or stews or okay. soups um so they were basically kind of used as an early form of spice oh cool but i think this is more interestingly and more importantly they seem to have been used as a contraception oh. yeah who knew <laughs> <Not> me <laughs> um yeah so when i was looking into this it seems like for 
a lot of people, this was sort of a traditional, um, a, a traditional method of, you know, either postponing getting pregnant again or <laughs> just avoiding pregnancy in general. And there are, you know, mentions of it in herbals and other you know, documents talking about the use of plants saying like, well, you know, juniper berries can save a woman's virtue. They can, you know, uh, keep, keep her, Uh. you know, from, from being shamed. And, you know, this actually (laughs) has been shown by modern science that they probably would have been quite effective because the berries, when you eat juniper berries in any quantity, it seems to affect the lining of the uterus uh, and kind of makes it inhospitable, basically, to uh, implantation. So oh. they can be taken... Yeah. Handy. And they can allegedly... Uh, would have been and, and can be taken as, you know, just like a regular thing that you're eating to avoid pregnancy. Um, and there's also records of them being used oh. as basically the medieval morning after pill where you're like oh man gotta gotta down a bunch of juniper berries today (laughs) and again these are in season in the winter primarily so you'd probably want to stock up if you were a lady looking to not get pregnant for a while (laughs) and Yeah, I mean, apparently this was pretty common knowledge throughout the countryside right up through the 19th century. And, you know, when I was digging into this a little bit, it does seem like that is kind of where you see a big drop off in knowledge about these sorts of, you know, traditional, basically, forms of birth control. Because in the 19th century, this is really the first time when, you know young women are moving away from their families. They're moving into the city before they're married and they don't necessarily have a access to these like wild foods and B they might not really have, have a family member nearby who's going to kind of talk to them about it and, you know, explain all this to them. Yeah. So, you know, it's just kind of a something to keep in mind that, you know, I just thought that was an an interesting little tidbit that yeah, people had had ways to prevent pregnancy that sort of fell out of out of knowledge. And you know, we normally think of like the linear train of progress where it goes up and up, and people <laughs> we keep getting better at everything, and everyone was stupid before about nineteen oh one. It's like no, there's yeah. a lot of knowledge that was actually lost by breaking up communities and moving away from these more traditional lifestyles. Yeah, totally. Uh, And I guess the last thing I'm going to talk about before I turn it over to Devin is assorted roots that you can, again, collect through the winter and that get basically ripe in the winter. (laughs) So there are... uh, Plants, there's one that's called three-cornered leek and another one that's called garlic mustard. And both of them are basically, I mean, they they are what they sound like. The three-cornered leek tastes kind of like a leek or a spring onion and garlic mustard tastes 
kind of like garlic or must like and mustard in <laughs> combination. Um, and again, these are bulking out your food, but also again, it's going to give you some nice extra added flavor so that you're not just eating bread and like watery soup. Yeah, it's going to give you a little a little extra something. Also, garlic mustard traditionally does have some medicinal purposes, specifically as a diuretic. And people also okay. planted it specifically because it is a wild plant, but it's somewhat able to be cultivated specifically. Um, they'd like to grow along like hedgerows and like kind of in the mm -hmm. in the shade sort of of other bigger, fluffier plants. And yeah. people would actually take them and grow them near near their hedges and bushes and stuff as a form of erosion control because you know they're have a relatively deep root and it'll kind of hold on to the soil yeah. for you so that's my bit done about what people were getting up to in medieval and early modern europe in order to survive and make their diet a little tastier because unlike unlike what the TV shows might have you believe peasants didn't l enjoy eating slop. Like they weren't just <laughs> happy to be like, "Wow, it's it's you know stale bread again." So happy, <laughs> stale bread and oatmeal. It's like no, they went out of their way to find something to add to their food to make yeah. it like a little bit more varied, a little tastier. And uh, apparently also had a means of kind of a an early form of birth control. But awesome. now let's hop across the pond and see what's going on in Maple Nation. Yeah, so we're going to... I have um, just one plant that I'm going to talk about. Um, so we're going to talk about maple trees. And... Um, Whoa. Yeah, so we're specifically going to be looking at the Quebec, northern New England area of North America, what is known um, among indigenous peoples as Maple Nation. So this incorporates the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee lands. And like one of the, the ways that these varied uh, nations are sort of referred to en masse is as Maple Nation. There's a few other communities that are also referred to as like their staple plant or animal so like maple nation salmon nation is like the northwest um and things like that um but we're gonna focus on on maple because it's a plant that you use during the winter to survive um and we all know about maple syrup <laughs> and I mean, it's I, I would hope so <laughs> it's a deep rooted like connection to canada in particular it's literally on the flag um, Look, we but... have strong strong branding <laughs> and we're just like also... this is what we're about yeah. stamp it on everything yeah it's even more specifically quebec though as well because yes quebec very much so has, um most of the maple trees so um the part of the reason for this, why maple is where it is and why you harvest the maple sap during the winter um, 
is because it, it really can only be harvested at a certain time of the year. And this is because what's happening is in the late winter, the buds for new branches and stuff are starting to come up on the trees, but mm-hmm. they're not getting enough sun and they don't have like enough nutrients to really grow a whole tr- tree. And the tree has been um, basically accumulating nutrients from the frozen soil all winter and storing them in the roots. And then what happens is as the weather starts to warm but stays really cold at night, the sun hits the tree bark and warms the inside of the tree so that it's able to like have liquid flow through it again. And the tree sends the nutrients from the roots up to the branches through the center. And all those nutrients are essentially just sucrose, right? And glucose. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And that's what makes it really sweet. And you can use to make syrup. Yeah. Um, um, Yeah. So there's a bunch of different varieties of maple trees. The most common one is the one that grows like, around Quebec and New England and again like the reason that in this area it can make the the syrup is because of how cold it gets right. and we're going to talk about that again later um, because it, it has to do that storing and then sending the sugar up through the center of the tree right. um, and so I'm going to just talk about a little bit about how indigenous people started practicing Um, like harvesting maple the most common story is that uh like if you ask indigenous people and how white people sort of (laughs) learned about this uh so they had white people right had come and met with the iroquois nations and had been served maple and they were like how did you get this and the response was that squirrel taught them Right, we learned it from right. the squirrels. The squirrels taught us how to do this, um, and of course, then the white people were like, "These crazy <laughs> people! Like this is nonsense." Um, as they were with a lot of stories, there are so many stories of indigenous people being ridiculously right, and white people being like, "Nah, that can't be true." Right. Um, part of the reason with this is an, an issue of uh, language construction and how indigenous people were directly translating into English yes. or French. European languages um, are pretty much only have active verbs for people. Um, yeah. And so like right. what they were saying was we watched squirrels like drink from the trees. And so we decided to figure out what was going on there. But the indigenous languages oh, okay. center plants and animals as beings linguistically equal with humans right right and so you know the the squirrel was active in that interaction in the basic language construction even um so when they say squirrel taught us it's because they were watching the squirrel and the squirrel was doing a thing and they learned from the squirrel right so it's it's that kind of deal um and then there's also another story from the Anishinaabe that I'm going to share with you about why uh, it's harvested the way that it is. So, um, and I'm reading right. this directly from a book. It's from 
braiding sweetgrass, um, and it says she adapted it from oral tradition and um, a text that had documented um, another version of the oral tradition. So it's a kind of combination. Um, so it says when the original, when the Anishinaabe original man, our teacher, part man, part manito, walked through the world, he took note of who was flourishing and who was not, who was of, who was mindful of the original instructions and who was not. And the original instructions are to like how to care for the world and stuff. He was dismayed when he came upon villages where the gardens were not being tended, where the fishnets were not repaired, and the children were not being taught the way to live. Instead of seeing piles of firewood and caches of corn, he found the people lying beneath maple trees with their mouths wide open, catching the thick, sweet syrup of the generous trees. They had become lazy and took for granted the gifts of the Creator. They did not do their ceremonies or care for one another. He knew his responsibility, so he went to the river and dipped up many buckets of water. He poured the water straight into the maple trees to dilute the syrup. Today, maple sap flows like a stream of water with only a trace of sweetness to remind the people both of possibility and responsibility. And so it is that it takes 40 gallons of sap to make a gallon of syrup. Right. Um, so that's this is like really important when we're talking about the indigenous practices of harvesting yeah. maple um, because it's seen very much as an interaction between humanity and the trees um, and the trees are active in that situation. So the trees are giving you a gift and you have to, there's, you know, sacred rites that happen before the harvest and like gratitude ceremonies that happen afterward um, and the way that you eat and store everything is, you know, in gratitude. And so, like, the original instructions, again, are sort of like these these things that Creator gave to the original man to show him how to learn from the other animals, because right. in the Anishinaabe and uh, Iroquois stories of creation man is the last thing created and so he doesn't know as much as everyone else right the plants know the most the animals are like getting on real good and then humans are dumb and so they're being they are both right. caring for and being cared for by the plants and animals and that like reciprocity has to be maintained so that's really important to think about and that like giving gratitude to the plants especially to the maple trees is really important yeah that that is very beautiful a and b i can see where there's gonna be some some not understanding <laughs> on the part of uh white colonists because that's the absolute inverse of how you know traditionally european society sees the natural world where it's you know yep. humans are at the top yeah we are the most important and everything exists to benefit us yeah 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 it's yeah. a little it's a bit inverted um so it's a big inversion <laughs> so when we're talking about like how the maple is processed um we can start with how indigenous people would process maple so obviously there yeah. weren't uh metal tools in north america because um we, they didn't have that kind of infrastructure uh, yeah. you also didn't need that infrastructure because of how the 
populations were interacting with plants and animals and the cultural... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to go on yeah, a tangent I, for a second because I... That's, that's fair. Go on a tangent. a little frustrated with the idea of industrialization and European markets being the marker for progress. Um, and things oh. like with guns, germs, and steel, where there's like, why don't they have... Why didn't these communities have stuff? And it's like... Eh, you can't just say it's like because they didn't have like large animals. I think even if they did have large animals, the cultural structure was different. And so like if you culturally don't believe that you need more stuff, you're not going to try and make more stuff. So there's part of it is just like where values lie. Yeah. Uh, that's going to shape how a society evolves. Um, so yes, there weren't tin pots and pails and stuff like that. Uh, kettles, so they weren't boil. They weren't going to boil maple syrup the way that we yeah. do now, uh, because they didn't have that stuff. Eventually, they got it, and we're like real excited about it. But like, whatever. That we don't need. Like, I get frustrated with the way that these disparate cultures are compared sometimes. So I just wanted to throw yeah, that and out there. So there were no. I mean, I I think that I mean if I can jump on yeah, your tangent jump jump on this train a little i i think it is also just very frustrating when it is presented as like ah yes like we in the 21st century like this is this is the peak of progress and development and it's like but we're creating so much waste like we are creating yeah. so much garb like literal garbage just plastics yeah. that are gonna exist forever and it's like is that really a better way to live than having you know fewer items but made out of like natural materials like wool and wood and clay that are eventually going to you know that that are made to last many generations but if left out like once they are too broken to use they can just decompose and it is frustrating trying to explain to people like no just because people didn't have you know a hundred outfits and didn't have you know like disposable items does not mean that their lives were like that's not why their lives were worse in some like in many ways they had like like yes there are parts of pre-modern society that i would not want to go back to i for one enjoy indoor plumbing (laughs) but you know it's not a like wow everything has just been a steady you know progress and it's just constantly getting better in every way because it's like it's not though yeah and and so like i'm gonna really plug braiding sweetgrass for a minute um since we've gone down this tangent i'm just gonna like write it just go for it and then we'll come back to how maple is harvested um because as we go on, especially um, when season two starts, hey. because I started prepping for that and I'm getting my research together, uh, it is there is going to be a lot of discussion of um, indigenous and Euro-Western North American cultures and the ways that they are different. Um, and a lot of people do this thing where they're like, ah, the indigenous people are so magical and one with nature and whatever. And, like, we can appreciate the parts of indigenous culture that do 
center gratitude and all of these things, right? Um, and are not consumerist and whatever. But we also can't talk about indigenous people as if they were like perfect saints of nature um, because there were full-fledged societies that did all sorts of different things and existed in different times and are still existing and have changed and been influenced by other cultures just like Europe yeah, has. The quote-unquote like Britain noble. was influenced by the like yeah. yeah britain was influenced by germany and the anishinaabe were influenced by the iroquois and the iroquois were influenced by the Algonquins. like it's a whole thing even before contact and then after contact you have like the influence of the french especially in, in this space that we're talking about but then you know america and britain and all of this stuff it's it's a changing dynamic thing um but there is something that she says in braiding sweetgrass and she's not a historian so this is a different text than what we are normally looking at but is that everyone's indigenous to somewhere right and we just have to look back at our own culture as well like so if you're part of a colonizer culture like i am right right straight up fully white protestant <laughs> yes we did not do a great job um did some good things did a lot of genocide <laughs> um so just but like we can i can we can look at our culture and the the aspects of it that are not rooted in that sort of capitalism and imperialism, which is what we really want to do, especially with your side of the podcast, you know, where we were talking about like how private property is a garbage concept right? and, and people were not homeless before, you know, the, the year 1500 ish. Yeah. Just not and a so concept. We can, yeah. We can look at the ways that there were, real communities in Europe. And that's one of the things that um, Dr. Kimmerer talks about with like how to be like, we obviously all white people can't just leave North America. That would be insane. But like, how do you become indigenous to a place? And it's like, don't co-opt other people's cultures, but also like think about what are the root values that are the same in your culture and in an indigenous culture and gratitude and community like at the very heart of it is really one of the things. And so that's, I think part of the, just to scroll back to the mission of our podcast yeah. is that we really want to look at the past and look at these cultures and how they have developed and see what along the way we definitely want to keep and what was perhaps a mistake, right? Like the whole invention of private property, not a great idea plastics love them for medical yes. reasons because like some people need feeding tubes and most people at one point in their t life are gonna need an yeah. iv they have Excellent. a place in this world great. catheters are dope if you need them I, if you don't need them don't because but, that sounds painful yeah. and weird but like you know even super i mean can i just say plastic drinking straws literally life-saving yes. equipment for a lot of people who need exactly. them to eat and consume any kind of calories, but, like, but you know, maybe everything that we just use shouldn't come wrapped in plastic. They, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like we can we can pick and choose. You know, like maybe you don't need plastic fake nails that you're gonna take off and throw away, and they're gonna exist forever. But you know, you do need a plastic straw because you cannot. Also, lift a cup. we could maybe like, like a lot of find. Stuff, so 
better ways to package necessities like food that is not let's wrap it in multiple layers of plastic because why why does everything have to come in plastic those are things and like you know purchasing things for holidays as opposed to like gathering and ritualistic behavior and like feasting right you know those kinds of things we can look at and be like yeah that's dope like let's keep that (laughs) but uh you know let's maybe change the way that we think about gift giving so that it's more of a like relationship builder and is about like maybe crafting something or giving something that you've been using and you really like and you're like this would be a very useful thing for so and so and i'm gonna give it to them now because i'm not using you know like exactly or like yeah or even like Even if you want to purchase something new, saying, like, okay, is there a way I can do this? And, and like, I do think that modern inventions like the internet, the internets has been very helpful for that. Because, you know, you can say, I want to get something for a loved one, but maybe I'm not super confident in my ability to make things. Etsy exists. Other, you know, websites exist where it's people making things in a much more, mm-hmm. you know, sustainable sustainable and ethical in many cases yeah. way because I don't know, maybe you want to get someone a sweater and you're like me and the idea of knitting <laughs> anything just makes you burst into tears. I love knitting. You can probably f- <laughs> I I I do not. I uh, autism for the win. I have tried for knitting, I've tried tasks. crochet, crochet. Oh. <laughs> oh. I would be a very, very bad, uh, like, Victorian <laughs> wife. I'd be there like, man, I don't want to knit socks. <laughs> Someone else do this. Oh. But anyway, back to our main point is there are there are good things and bad things in the past. And we, we are lucky enough to have all these past knowledge that we can pick and choose from. Yeah, So totally. why don't we do and that? I think that- that's definitely a thing that we should be working collectively working on and that's really the goal of our podcast is to sh- like not necessarily show people exactly how to do things but what has been done and sort of you know like what our thoughts on it are so that maybe uh, someone can look at it and be like yo that's a really cool idea i'm going to start doing that or i'm going to you know help a community continue doing yeah. that or you know whatever cuz i mean we so, also um, don't have all the answers i don't know everything you don't know everything like we're just doing our best (laughs) yeah i definitely don't know anything but mutual aid for the win and if we can get back to you how right thank you you uh, know we got maple syrup originally harvested (laughs) now that we've gone on a 10 minute tangent if you've made it this far into the episode i assume you know how things work around here so let's thank you for sticking with us let's go back to maple syrup (laughs) Right. So the syrup, um, they you would make birch bark pails. So this is a one of the things that you talked about, the yep. the birch bark. Right? So that's the the white trees that look like they have paper peeling off of them. Yes. And you can peel like huge strips of that off, um, and use it to make all sorts of I mean, full on canoes. Yep. You can write on it, you can use it for kindling, you can also build uh, buckets. Yeah. So that's what they would do here. They build like pails um, and 
tap the trees and let the sap pour into the pails and collect it. And then they would have um, another type of wood. Uh, they'd make these long, hollowed-out log troughs. Right. That were, like, really sort of shallow. Um, and you would pour the sap into the troughs. And then because it was still freezing overnight ice would form on the top of the sap and that would be all the water that would be pulled out of the sap and frozen and uh you would break that off then in the morning and just the syrup would be left on the bottom and you could take just that syrup then and put it into like the smaller clay pots and boil it down into an actual like crystallized sugar oh this is so um, cool to like make maple candy or something you know that you could then store for the winter so you could either keep it as the just syrup and you know pour it into a bucket and store it for a shorter amount of time or cook it down into its like hardened form and then it would store well throughout the next year and that was really important because um the late winter so, like, in Canada and stuff, we're talking about, like, um, March, you know, just before you can start planting anything. It's called the hunger moon. Right. Um, because, like, you know, your stores Ooh. are starting to run out. Everything's covered yeah. in snow. It's a kind mm-hmm. of hard to forage here. But, right, the the maple trees have got your back. So, if you were wise the winter before, right. or even now, you know, like, as the spring is coming, you can start tapping the trees and getting the maple sugar out and it's just a a fast way for a lot of calories um and also to like season whatever stores you still have left so it's uh much like the other foraged foods it's um something you would store all year uh but would also help extend your stores and provide extra calories just to sort of like make it through to when you can start uh, spring foraging and start planting and getting crops again um so yeah so yeah it's the the hunger moon <laughs> which was uh not super great and so then what happens obviously is um the french show up in quebec <laughs> and they're like how do we survive the winter it is freakishly cold here um especially if you look at where most of the people who came to settle quebec came from it's a a little bit further south in France, so like yes. it's like a very and uh, mild, again in, in general, pretty much Europe the is same. A lot milder, yeah, and like southern France is like it's like the same all year round. It's just like nice, just nice yep. weather. And they were all those people it's like pretty warm. Were sitting there and they were like, you know where I want to go to a place where it is boiling hot in the summer and completely frozen in the winter. <laughs> You know, I I don't know. Sometimes you gotta Not you gotta to judge all wonder seventeenth century French Canadians, but well, you know, Devin, <laughs> we have an episode about why people were driven to do yes, silly do. things so like go this. Go back and listen. Go to back and the private property, private property, <laughs> and you'll find out why they were like, "We have to get out of France." Um, but so they show up because it wasn't like, the weather. I will tell you that. Yeah, it was not the weather. It was uh, rich people. <laughs> yep. So they show up and they're like, "How do we get? Uh, how do we get through the winter?" And the indigenous people were like, "Maple." Um. And since, right, the the Europeans are bringing uh, 
you know, metal goods with them, like kettles and big yes. pots and cauldrons and stuff. They're able to sort of shift the way that maple is processed. So it actually, it becomes more labor intensive, but a lot faster right? with these French innovations. So right in the indigenous way, the night and the cold are pretty much doing all of the work for you because it's just freezing the water yeah. out. Um, but what they start doing with uh, these tools that are brought from Europe is just boiling the sap down. So you can collect a lot more sap in the big metal pails, um, bring them to a, they'd build little cabins in which they would have a fire going essentially all the time. And what you would do right. is uh, have the, the fire going and boiling the sap down so that as it boils, the water evaporates. And then from a little spigot, you can collect it in a barrel, the actual sugar. Um, and so you would do that in a specialized cabin because it would be really hot, labor-intensive work, and they would be doing it sort of all day and night for you know weeks. So people would it was a community event, and you right. would have the like cabin where it was done, and people would like be bringing in the sap all the time. And uh, in French, that became known as the cabana sucre. So the the yeah. cabin of sugar <laughs> um or in english when they moved to ontario uh the sugar shacks so yeah. it's a little tiny shack made out of sugar and um because that was like such a big event of um you know community enterprise it has stayed as a sort of cultural hallmark of canadian life in the winter you go to the sugar shack um, yep. so these would be the places where people are harvesting maple syrup and uh you go and they have like these big family style meals and um they serve the like maple syrup on the ice the the snow troughs so that it crystallizes and you can like eat it like candy again and there's maple syrup on all the food and stuff and in cooked into the food there's also and it's like the a, a, big fun event it's also my it's favorite awesome. is when they heat up the maple syrup and then pour the hot maple syrup onto snow and then you take a stick and you put it on yeah. the heated up maple syrup and roll it up into <laughs> into a lollipop essentially um yeah i grew up in canada my husband did not and the first time he ever saw that he took a video to send back to his friends, <laughs> he he's like, no one is going to believe me if I tell them that Canadians take maple syrup, dump it on the snow, and then eat it. <laughs> like, that's just not, that's too stereotypical to be believable. <laughs> so that's uh, my favorite part now. <laughs> yeah, the Canadian stereotypes, like, I don't get why you guys push back against them so much, because one, like, none of them are really bad, and two, they're all true. <laughs> I mean, you know, Devin, you gotta, you gotta have some pride. I personally choose not to push back against them and reinforce them. I'm like, yes, I did indeed ride a caribou to school each day um, growing up. Your, this isn't your even family pet fake. was a moose. I, yeah, my family pet was a moose. Your cousin's uh, a beaver. We kept beavers in the backyard for fun and profit. 
Um, and I did go to Sugar Shacks as as school field trips. So, you know, this is this is a fun three truths and a lie episode. <laughs> Which one of those is real? Oh. So yeah. So also, the maple- wait. I- <laughs> so yeah. So uh, I have a a bit more information about sort of how then the French. Quebec culture sort of emerged around this uh, maple process because it became a, a huge part of uh, what's now called the Quebecois community and um, and like French Canadian in general and also uh, a bit about how Canada and New England are moving forward in a time of climate crisis with maples because as we said they need a certain amount of time in frozen ground much like apples do in order to produce fruit so uh there's some questions about that i'm going to put the uh the information about quebec uh sort of in the 19th 20th century to today bit on patreon so if you're a patreon subscriber you can really tune into that it's gonna be super fun um We'll have another little bonus episode yeah. coming your way. And uh, we could talk about some of the recipes, um, some some family recipes that I have inherited through marriage from my French-Canadian husband. And uh, we're on Instagram. I'm going to put up a little bit of information about how the global climate crisis is affecting maple production, especially in New England. Uh so yeah, so make sure you follow our social media and subscribe on Patreon if you want to hear uh, about Quebec. Stay safe and do good work. Thank you for listening to the Bapiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye!